Welcome to Wilderness Tracks, recorded at the 2022 Timber Festival in the National Forest. In each episode, a different artist, writer, musician or thinker tells me about six pieces of music that somehow connect them to the natural world. Natalie Haynes is a writer and broadcaster and, according to the Washington Post, a rock star mythologist. Not content with a highly successful career as a stand-up comedian and broadcaster, she's now also the author of numerous brilliant books putting women at the centre of the Greek myths. Her most recent novel, Stone Blind, was published in September 2022 and tells the story of Medusa. Unlike those that came before, it's topped the bestseller lists on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm going to start by telling you what happened when I asked Natalie to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Natalie, well, I mean, got the email back immediately. Music? Nature? What? Me? What are you on about? Like, I don't uh, know anything. Uh, and yet you're here. Yes. He's very generous. I'm very obedient. It may be a very short conversation. I'm so sorry. I really don't know anything about music. It's my great Achilles heel. And I got away with this um, reviewing for the BBC for about 15 years on uh, BBC Two for Newsnight Review, as it once was, and then Review Show, as it became. Um, and then for Saturday Review on Radio 4. And I, the whole time I was doing it, I never knew anything about music. And I tried really hard. And I, it's not like I'm not interested, but I have a very strange attitude to music, which is that I will... And I didn't realise this was weird until five years ago, maybe. But I will listen to the same song on repeat for a train journey from Edinburgh to London. That is weird. And, and I thought everyone did this. I thought everyone went, oh, I need to kind of be in a good zone. I'll listen to the same three-and-a-half-minute song for four-and-a-half hours. I didn't realise it was odd at all. <laughs> so only recently have I discovered that other people know more than 100 songs. <laughs> I honestly didn't know how you were all doing it. I'm like, wait, they used that time. So, yeah, I, we, what you've got is a set of songs I've listened to on repeat. Okay, well, you'll know them well, at least. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, so, so you don't know much about music. I don't. And also, I've been reading through various interviews that you've done over the years, and you've not talked much about nature either. No, I've tried to get better at it, because um, when I wrote my first novel, when I wrote Amber Fury, which is set in a city, it's set in Edinburgh, and a little bit in London, but mostly Edinburgh, um, I sent in the um, first draft to my then agent, and this isn't why he became my then agent, uh, that was later, <laughs> and he said, it's a bit like, what did he say, he said, it's like hanging screens, it's like, no, there's no, I don't feel like I know where the walls are in your buildings, and it was a really good note, and one I cheerfully hand over to you all, um, which is that people, when they're reading fiction, want to know where they're standing, and that's not an unreasonable thing to want. And so that was a very urban book and set in the modern world, but my next novel, uh, Children of Jocasta, um, I had to build a palace, which it was sort of stolen from Knossos. It's set in the Bronze Age. Um, it's the story of the Theban saga. And so I had to kind of build it from scratch. So I... I I made quite a quick decision that it would just be one story. Knossos itself was on multiple floors, but I just couldn't cope with stairs. Um, my, <laughs> my writing brain is a Dalek in this way. Uh, it's like, no, we'll do it on one floor, thank you. Otherwise, bafflement will ensue. But then I got to write, you know, birds and nature and all of those things. And I realised it wasn't... I have a bad tendency, I think, to go, oh, yeah, I'm not very good at that. And actually, of course, what you should think is, I should learn how to become better at that. So I think I did get better at it, and certainly in uh, ships, in Thousand Ships, there's a lot of, a city catches fire right at the beginning, spoiler, and uh, it's right near the start, don't worry. And also, it's, do you know what, it's Troy, you should know this. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, you know, there are, these women are waiting on a sort of ruined beach for ages, and I thought, well, I've got to learn how to write this. I've got to learn how to write it. So I've got better at it, I hope. 
Writing aside, though, what about your actual experience uh, out in the... In the actual world. In the actual world. Does it, is it something that f- figures large in your, in your life? Is yeah, it... I'm sort of... I mean, I'm very urban. I live in the middle of London, but I'm very outdoorsy, surprisingly so, uh, for somebody who writes for a living. If I'm not writing, I'm either kickboxing or I'm running through Regent's Park or Hampstead Heath. That's where I am happiest. And my niece, if you asked her, would tell you that I know everything about trees because I'm the only person who's ever defeated the four-year-old why conversation because she went, but why do trees? And I said, well, because they need chlorophyll for this. But then why do trees? And eventually I got to the point after about 20 minutes ago, do you have any further questions? And she went, (laughs) no. (laughs) I bested a four-year-old in a battle of wits. (laughs) Are you proud? Uh, Some of the people we've had over the years have emailed me over a course of weeks going, I just can't whittle it down. I've had it down to 20 and I'm down to 10 and then I've got to add it a few more in. Natalie, I've got a series to finish by Wednesday. and Here's some songs. Yeah, you mailed and said, could I get your songs? And I was like, I'm I'm writing the radio series. I can't do anything until the day after the, the last recording, which was Wednesday night. So that would have been Thursday. And you were like, you're so, he's so patient. He went, um, yeah, I mean, the, the festival's like the next day. So <laughs> any time before then would be great. But if that's when you're free, and I was like, oh no, God, that's really unhelpful. So I literally looked at my phone and picked the first six songs that had a name and nature. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I told you I'd be a terrible guest. I feel bad. Number one, I think we've already proved yourself wrong there. Uh, <laughs> number one, uh, Early you, days. Put, you, put, you know, I've been waiting for years for somebody to say Tom Waits. Mm. And you say Tom Waits. You've already of course won. I'm going to say Tom Waits. Won. What's you've... everyone else been doing, the idiots? <laughs> Simon? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Simon. <laughs> I know Martin Eden's going to cry already. I'm going to be proud of me. Many before me have been called by the sea to be up in the crow's nest. So, Tom Waits, why Tom Waits? Apart from the fact that it was number one on your list when you looked at your phone. Tom Waits is, I think there's only one artist on this list who has been in my head and my life for longer than Tom Waits and only then by about a year. So I'm afraid I had terrible taste in men when I was young, but certainly not now. Um, (laughs) Really still now. Um, But, (laughs) so I had a much older boyfriend whose age will remain uh, concealed because my mum is in the audience. Um, And so he, when I was let's say 16 and round down to the nearest legal number. So he, (laughs) uh, of course, played... I mean, like, every boy I ever date plays a guitar. I I don't know why this surprises anybody, least of all me. Um, And so he was a big Tom Waits nerd. And so he, he introduced me to Tom Waits when I was, you know, a teenager, a child, basically. I mean, we must have dated for, like, two years, but certainly Tom Waits has stayed in my life a lot longer. And I've never really... I don't really know how other people get to the end of a day without Tom Waits. Do you know what I mean? It's like I feel vaguely disloyal to the sort of Tom Waits phenomenon listening to him during daylight. It feels to me slightly disrespectful because it's not nighttime and no one's smoking and we're not drinking and we should be. And I don't smoke and I only occasionally drink, but I feel like my loyalty to Tom Waits is such that, that I should. So he's been, 
He's part of my... We couldn't have San Diego Serenade because it just makes me cry and I didn't want to cry in front of you. Sorry. Um, which is probably my favourite Tom Waits song. And this one is The Sea and that's what I've been writing about for the last two years with Medusa, Stone Blind, as it is actually now called. And so my Gorgon girl lives on the shore and uh, her parents are sea monsters, a sea god and a sea monster, because that's the, the backstory of the Gorgons. Um, and her sisters are Gorgons and they all live there. And so I've spent a really long time considering I grew up in Birmingham, as far from the sea as you can basically get, it, with the sea in my head. So, yeah, that's why. And many before me have been called by the sea. On the, on the classics front, you know, it's so present all the time. And all, you know, obviously in the Odyssey, the whole yeah. thing is, is one big, long, ten-year ship journey. I it? mean, you say that. I've just recorded this for Radio 4. So here's the <laughs> thing. He spends fully one year yes, okay. at the, on the island of Aia with Circe and then seven years with Calypso. So we always consider the Odyssey to be a great adventure narrative. But eight of those ten years are spent having horizontal adventures with women who aren't his wife. Um, and two of those years are spent having adventure, adventure, vertical adventures with an assortment of people who aren't his wife. So it is... And yet, the, but the bit that makes me think of is that bit where having gone to, wait, I know this, book 12, I literally did learn this for, to do the whole Odyssey in 28 minutes on Wednesday night, so I really should know it. So in book 12, after they come back from the underworld um, and they go to Aia for a second time to bury Elpenor, who they'd forgotten to bury the first time before they left, um, having, you know, 46 men left and one of them falls off a roof and dies and no one even notices that he's gone. Um, so they get to the underworld and his ghost comes and goes, <coughs> <laughs> literally left me four dead, actually dead, unburied. And so they go back and bury him and then they go past the sirens and his men, not but um, singing, um, and his men are, uh, they have beeswax uh, ear protectors in but he's tied to the mast so he can hear them he's the Odysseus is the only man who hears the siren song and lives to tell the tale and then they get uh, shipwrecked on Thrinacia which is where the son Helios keeps his cows and then they are becalmed there for 30 days and his men harm the cows eat them eventually and Helios has an absolute shit fit and complains to Zeus and refuses to shine so Zeus says okay well let them set sail and I'll shipwreck them and he kills all of them except for Odysseus and, uh, and so Odysseus gets blown all the way back to Charybdis, the whirlpool, giant whirlpool. And so she, she swallows his boat, and he survives by hanging onto a fig tree for a day. And then she eventually regurgitates like a single plank, and he hangs onto the plank and gets blown all the way to Ogygia, where Calypso lives. And thus ends book 12. In uh, indirect speeches, he narrates it to the Phaeacians. And so that, that's what it makes me think of. <laughs> <laughs> But, See, I don't know anything about music, but I know a shit ton about the Odyssey. <laughs> but this, so I am, I am really genuinely interested to know this, though. You, your brain is just this incredible store of knowledge. Your mum was telling me also earlier on how good you are at maths, and you can outwit <laughs> the sharpest four-year-old in the park. Yes, I can, yeah. But are you also, in recounting these stories swept up with the romance of the sea you know the, because the Tom Waits song is, is full of you can smell the brine in it almost to yes. the point where it's too much do you get, get swept up with that? I think I mean I'm slightly afraid of the sea in truth and I wonder if that's because I grew up so very far from it and we never went to the seaside when I was a kid um, my family that's not from here is from Belgium so we went to the sea to get on a ferry to go to Belgium to see my other family over there so the seaside and that kind of element of the sea isn't part of my backstory at all so to me the sea is a place of of shipwrecks and monsters and all of those things it's a narrative rather than a you know I, I'm always thrilled to get to go to the sea because to me it still feels like a really novel thing to do I, I think I was 
21 when I first went to Brighton. <laughs> Just, so, you know, and yet when I, last year after we'd been locked in for so long here, I went over to Cardamili, the southern coast of the Peloponnese, to do a book festival because it turns out if you write enough books about Greece, eventually you get to go and do a book festival in freaking Greece, which is... <laughs> I'm not saying that was my sole reason. I'm saying it really perked things up. And, and being at their sea and having their plants and feeling their trees and their, you know, it was, I stood on a path alone having spent the day hanging out with lovely people who I really liked, other classicists like Bethany and stuff. And I stood on this path alone and looked out at the sea and just cried and thought, you know, this, I've, been, I've been with this sea all this time writing this book. I wrote Stone Blind alone you know locked down in my flat and it's all about family because nobody ever thinks of Medusa having a family but she does she's one of three sisters they mourn her when she is killed and that bit of the story is always ignored because she's a monster and a weapon it's like she's not she's a person and a sister and so being in that world for so long and then suddenly being in its real version it's like oh yeah this this sea is my sea I think the Aegean sea is my sea I'm just saying that so I get invited back. <laughs> I've already been invited back. <laughs> you ne- <laughs> I you win. Ne- your next book is on the mythology of the Bahamas. And then it's, uh, yeah, Why do I always Malibu get that wrong? Malibu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, track number two, please, which is, uh, well, do you want to introduce it? You don't know what it is. No, so. I've got no idea. Oh, I love the Beagle Tanyas. <laughs> That's why you chose them. Oh, great choice. <laughs> the Beagle Tanyas are amazing. So a really long time ago, um, when I still got to do that kind of programme, um, I did Loose Ends on uh, Radio 4, and it was always, it's always a complete crapshoot who you're on with. Um, and so sometimes it's an artist who, while being undeniably a household name, I will never have heard of. And just to give you an idea of how my musical brain works, um, last year I was briefly dating a very, very young man. Um, <laughs> uh, a musician, as it turns out, in Greece. Really a lot younger than me. And um, I've got no regrets. And... <laughs> He plays, you know, everything, but amongst other things, piano. And he played, I can't even remember now what the song was, and I had no idea what it was. And he said, but you must know who it is, it's Elton John. And I'm like, oh, okay. Because how would you know that? And he's like, because you've been alive in the world. Subtextually for quite a lot longer than I have. (laughs) Close that bracket. And I just had no idea. And then his... I have no idea how it works. His phone did a thing in which it picks a song that you like and then it picks another song that it thinks you'll like. And it was like a really... I was like, oh, no, and I went, is this C.W. Stone King? And he was like, how can you know that and not know Elton John? Went, I don't know, but the answer is because I was on some loose ends with C.W. Stone King in the same room. And he was absolutely astonished. If you don't know him, he is, to me anyway, he is the modern heir of Tom Waits and you should for sure give him a go. But I was in the studio one time and the Be Good Tanyas were on and they played uh, a song called Utaskenia, which I have listened to more than any... I mean, literally, I have listened to it probably thousands of times now. But we, again, we couldn't have that one because it would have just made me cry and I couldn't do it. Um, so instead, I chose my second favourite one, which I've only listened to maybe 800 times, and that is their version of a folk song called The Lakes of Pontchartrain. It was on one fine March morning and I bid New Orleans adieu And I was on the road to Jackson Town my fortunes to renew I cursed all borrowed money No credit could I gain Which filled my heart 
So why this why particular this song? Well, partly because Frazy Ford is awesome and she has another one in this list, uh, but as a solo act later on, I think. And partly because it makes me think of that, the thrill of being in a live space um, with musicians performing, which we lost for a really long time, unless you had the good sense to live with a musician. Um, we just didn't have it, and that there's something really special and magical about it. But also, Train makes me think, it's such a touring song. And I was a, a Tory? Touring, a touring song. Like, oh, sorry. Because it's about being somewhere... Gonna... Not Tory. <laughs> no, that would be very wrong. Um, well, not wrong, just no wrong. Um, <laughs> I was just trying to find some BBC balance. No, I've none. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just toppled over again. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's... Well, it makes me think of being that in that place where... I. I have literally been on tour since I was 23 years old. It, it's, it, and you're always essentially in full Blanche Dubois mode of <laughs> throwing yourself on the kindness of strangers because things do go wrong and you do end up stranded somewhere with, you know, you curse your foreign money <laughs> because that's all you have. That is what happens. And so it, it makes me think that there is something incredibly romantic about that sense of always being in motion and never being still anywhere for very long. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not... You can't live like it forever, but I missed it terribly when we couldn't when we couldn't travel. And as a as a writer, because you were uh, obviously a, a stand up, a very mm. successful stand up, and on tour, but writing presumably anchors you more to to one place. Oh, yeah, maybe... you would think, but it hasn't gone that way. I do more <laughs> shows now in an average year touring the books than I did in the last I don't know four or five years of my stand up career when I was sort of winding down and, and trying to write at the same time. So when Ships came, I think I did 75 shows the year Ships came out, and it came out in May. And the furthest flung was New Zealand. It wasn't, you know, down the road. So I spend a huge amount of time on And when Stone Blind comes out in September, I, I, I could be gigging, you know, three times a day, every day for the rest of the year. It's only because I'll have a breakdown if we do that that's not happening. And also because I had two years of therapy, so I would go, no, I'll have a breakdown, stop it. Uh, the moral of this story, if you have therapy, pick a German they really encourage you to go, no, I can't do that. That's impossible. No human being could do that. German therapists are great. Um, uh, and, they just take, and they're just like, why would you say that? And you go, because it's polite. It's like, why? Yeah. yeah, that's actually a really good question. You make an excellent point. So, um, yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to gig some and not all. Because I, feel, I get terrible guilt. You know, I like, I like being out on the road and it's lovely doing you know, big gigs and everything, but I also try and do schools and things like that, and we had to institute a no new schools, so I go to, back to schools I've played before, but I, I can't, I, I could play school shows every, and, it's, and every single person gets in touch saying, you know, my students would really benefit from this, it's like, I, I hope that's true, but I still can't be at all of them, otherwise I can't write any books. I, already in the space of 20 minutes, we've had more digressions from you than in the whole podcast series put together, and it's brilliant. That's what I brought. German therapists, 16 year old Greeks with guitars he wooing you. He was 16, he was 31, <laughs> which is practically the same age as me, Jeff. <laughs> A number of the tracks are rooted in North American landscapes. This is, they're yes. Canadian, aren't they? It's so a North American in the, in, the, in the larger sense. Yes, in its continental sense. In the continental sense, indeed. And uh, so I, I wonder whether or not, imaginatively, that is the particular kind of landscape that you go to when you're kind of strolling around uh, for a, a, a metaphorical wonder. No, you know where I went to a lot over, the, over those lockdown walks was Australia, and also New Zealand. And I guess it's because I'd been on tour there in 2019. 
Um, but I, I don't want to listen to an excess. I can't help it. <laughs> I, I pick the Australian and New Zealandish landscapes, and yet I haven't picked Crowded House or an excess. Um, I, I think this says a lot about me as a person, and none of it good. Wait, some of it good. Um, but yeah, no, I, I find it doesn't matter to me particularly what the landscape is I'm in or thinking of while I'm walking or running. I just need to be in one. And ideally, it won't have cars in it because I'm really clumsy and I run in front of them all the time. But my imagined worlds, the places where I'm setting my writing, are so real that I, it would almost be difficult to be in it while I'm writing because then the people in it wouldn't be there and that would be strange. You're looking at me like I'm literally deranged and I accept that it does No, but like I just, I just, what I'm thinking is what an extraordinary thing to to discover in the process of yeah. writing, because presumably you didn't realise that until it happened no to you. And that's yeah, remarkable. Yeah, I had no idea. And it's only as time's gone on. And when I finish a book, it's, it's like, I, when I've... <laughs> I always say, when I handed it in, I'm not at school, uh, when I submitted <laughs> my manuscript um, for Stone Blind last year, I have about 24 hours usually of going... <gasps> It's finished, it's finished, it's finished, it's finished, it's finished. And then I smack into the ground at such a speed. It's uh, <laughs> All my friends are going, you know they're not real, yes? All oh, my friends. Like, it's really hot. It's just really hot. And this was the worst one because they were, they were the people that had kept me company through lockdown. And it's like, oh God, I feel like I've lost everything. It was awful. I spent 48 hours properly crying. <laughs> Do you? Like a nut job. But that, you know, what can you do? If you love them, you love them. It doesn't matter if you made them up. I, to be honest, I've fallen in love with plenty of real life people who I've basically made up to substitute their entirely defective personality. So, in every regard. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate your sympathy. <laughs> How do you get back there? I'm genuinely curious. When you, when you hit that 48 hour cry fest, yes. is it just hooking onto another narrative, another story, another set of people. Usually. And thinking, okay, I can start from scratch and yeah. replace that lot with, with... Yeah, and then the problem is, of course, you never stop working and you just work all the time, which is what I do. I have a holiday roughly every five years for a week and then I feel twitchy and then I go back to work. Do you enjoy holidays or do you just... No. Like... What, I mean, what, why does everyone look forward what? to them? Why are the adverts? You might as well have adverts for death row. I can't understand it. <laughs> I just can't understand it. Look, just give up your life. Why would I want to give up my life? Etc. I can't bear it. I just can't bear it. I just can't bear it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number three. <laughs> I was your lonest man. And I knew every holler, every cool swinging hole. To one night I laid him down, woke up to find that my childhood was over. I went down in the mine. Anybody want to take a guess? We didn't introduce it because we're slack. No, not Tom Waits. Anybody want to shout? John Prine. No, not oh, John Prine. Oh, that's a good guess, but no. No, it's, uh, it is in fact Steve Earle. Yeah, Steve uh, Earle with the Dalmacori Bluegrass Band. Steve Earle I've been listening to since I was 15 years old, the first time I heard The Devil's Right Hand from Copperhead Road. 
and um, I fully intended to become Mrs. Steve Earle by this point. How old And is he's he? been married like <laughs> seven times to six wives because that's so country. Um, and I've still failed. It's like, isn't it like jury service? Is it not yet my go? <laughs> Somehow I've inexplicably not married Steve Earle. I genuinely feel aggrieved that uh, this hasn't happened. He's still around, isn't he? He's still around. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm still asking. It's like, dude... I write, you write, I'm charming. Have Come you on. asked? Yeah, n- well, now I'm asking. <laughs> by the bleak chance that he's going to listen not yeah. <laughs> into the Wilderness Tracks podcast. Yeah, then um, this is his moment to step up. <laughs> his last wife was incredibly pretty, so I don't love my chances, but you never know. Well, the way, the way he's going through them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this song in particular, This Mountain. Yeah, well, this record was a, um, I think it was a sort of labour of love because bluegrass isn't, you know, it had a sort of moment, didn't it, here, because of yeah, things yeah. like, oh, brother, where art thou, and stuff, which, of course, is a version of the Odyssey, but let's not go that route again. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I think it was quite a fractious record to make, because um, I think Dal McCurry was... I, I, don't get me wrong, I think Steve Earle could pick a fight in an empty room. And yet, you know, that hasn't put me off wanting to marry him. Um, <laughs> so that's wholesome. I think we can all move forwards with that. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it was quite a, a stressy tour, Um, But it's a beautiful record, and it's a beautiful record precisely because I think it gives voice to an experience of work that we don't always think of. And so the mountain, its subtext is all about mining. And I realised that in my um, extensive collection of alt-country, which is essentially country music, but you don't believe in the death penalty, um, (laughs) as I always like to describe it to people... um, (laughs) uh, But I have got maybe, like, six songs about mining disasters... I've got maybe three about logging disaster. It's a very niche thing. <laughs> you go, oh, yeah, it's quite, it's quite a lot of danger in the natural world. And I like that sense. Um, I like the idea that wherever you are, that, some, that a mountain can be both a place of great solace and protection, but that also it can be a place of enormous peril. And this is very Greek. Mount Kithiron is the most dangerous place in Greek myth, bar none at all. It's where Oedipus is exposed as a baby. It's where Acteon is torn apart by his hounds. It's where Pentheus is torn apart by his mother and aunts. It's a, mountains are dangerous, is what I'm telling you. But they are, I mean, they, the innards of mountains are absolutely strewn across various mythologies. Mm. Um, you know, not just the, the Greeks. Gates to the underworld yeah, and everything. Yeah. Yeah, of is that the thing that pulls, or is it just really Steve? I mean, it, Steve is the main draw, <laughs> in spite of his obdurate resistance um, to marrying me, which is now starting to look, frankly, Aeneas in Aeneid 4-ish. Yeah, allowing for that, yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I realised that we were actually racing through time. Turns out you had a lot to say about music and nature and all things in between. We're all surprised. We're going to go to number four, which is Hooray for the Riff Raff. That's a great song. I didn't know this song. It's I, a great song. It's brilliant. I didn't, yeah. know she, I didn't know her. I'm so far behind. Oh, she's... Yeah, she's properly... Sorry. In fact, her whole last record was a, a co-production with a tree, I think. Was so it? I, I should have... I mean, I probably should have picked that. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, one minute. Amazing, crazed Puerto Rican Americana. And then next... Oh, okay, a tree. Yeah, fine. Yeah. Mm. Okay, okay. 
All right. Uh, she, she describes herself or is described as a nature punk. Yes. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It is. It's extremely cool. And this is a really cool song because it does something which I guess I have tried to do with Greek myth or with fiction in general, which is to take a traditionally male narrative and recenter it. So this is um, what is known as, and no slur is intended, a hillbilly murder ballad in which generally a man murders a woman because she has done him wrong, except usually she hasn't done him wrong. He merely perceives in a moment of anger that she has and then kills her and then realises that actually she was true all along and so heartbreak, heartbreak, etc. And that's completely fine. I must own a dozen of them, probably two dozen. But she takes this song and goes, OK, well, what happens if it's her story? And, and that's why she sings. You know, you sh- shot me down, put my body in the river. And it's like, yeah. That's what happens if you recenter the story. What does it look like? It looks like an astonishing act of male aggression. And so it's called The Body Electric with a little hat tip to Walt Whitman. But I think what's important about it, to me anyway, is what happens when you reframe these stories. I don't and have never sought to remove male narratives from anything, but I do want a a complementary narrative in which somebody says, what happens when women happen? What happens when women are our focus? What happens when women get involved in a story? Telling it as well as being in it. And we've been talking about the possibility of looking at doing something on, on Heracles, Hercules, yes. which is a kind of a, a, a switch away from that, but with great intent. I yeah. think you know you talked about how that illustrates some of the kind of issues around toxic masculinity. Absolutely, but, he is the archetypal strongman narrative, insofar as he kills his wife and children in a moment of madness, um, having been maddened, I might add, by his vengeful sort of stepmother, and so. It is strangely and in a difficult way appropriate when he is then killed by his third wife, Deonira. By mistake, she thinks she's giving him a love potion because he's straying. And, of course, the love potion is made of the blood of a rapist centaur um, who is shot uh, with an arrow dipped in hydra blood, which is poisonous. So, unsurprisingly, it turns out that the love potion isn't a love potion. It's deeply poisonous, and she kills him by mistake. And that is the Sophocles play Trachinii. And so there is, again, there's, it feels to me that there are untold stories here. Um, I can talk because I'm not, it's not my next novel and it, it's not the one after that either. But the women of Hercules, Heracles' life are really interesting and his narrative makes a lot more sense if we frame it in those terms. There's a long chunk of time when he is a slave to Omphile and they are in a cross-dressed yeah, yeah. partnership where yeah. she is seen as being very masculine and is wearing his some of his war gear, and he's wearing women's clothes. And it's like, why don't we ever talk about that bit of this story? Yeah. It, it's all about what? killing lions. and I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and certainly in terms of vase painting, that's the most famous and, and popular one of his labours is the Nemean lion. And I can see why. Choking a lion to death is, you know... Pretty cool. It looks good on a vase. Um, <laughs> but uh, vases have changed a lot over time. Um, <laughs> But, yeah, I think there are, there are women's stories to put in here and women's stories that were always there that we've just lost sight of, usually because classical reception has been a bit limited. I'm really interested to ask you about this next thing. It's, um, uh, you were a teacher and your parents were teachers, I, I think. Um, and you gave that up and became a performer and a, a comedian and yes. an entertainer and then a writer. And I'm just curious how you fold those together in your mind. Are you concerned with education or or reframing or entertaining and i mean it's obviously all of those but how 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 do they play with one another yeah i was quite a fraudulent teacher because i'd already started doing stand-up but i just didn't earn any money it takes in those days it took about two years i think it takes longer now because there are fewer gigs um to go from earning nothing to earning a 
small but a survivable living um, in the late 90s. So I taught for six months at the same time to pay the bills. Uh, but I had no intention of staying. I was always going to leave. And my parents, to be fair, had always said, I'm going to teaching. It's really stressful at all. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> good news. I'm going to try stand-up comedy. <laughs> I think I'll be fine. Um, so, yeah, I don't, really, I don't really see them as separate. I don't think... I don't... I, I set out to do everything. For, for somebody who makes cheap jokes all the time, I take things incredibly seriously. Yes. Not myself, but the work. And so I, I approach everything really seriously. So when, when we make... The Radio 4 show, when Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics, I spend days, weeks, learning things and researching things and then writing notes. And there are pages and pages and pages and pages of notes for every episode. And no one ever... You know, the, the series so far, now we've just done series eight, I have, like, this many notes on, on whatever that is, 38, 32 programmes. So it takes forever. But I see the whole thing as a sort of... Someone interviewed me a few years ago for Jocasta, I think, and said, you know, as a classical proselytizer, And I was like... Oh, yeah, that's probably right, actually. I really do think everyone's life is better if they have access to classics, if they want it. So I suppose that's always what I'm trying to convey, is that these stories are here for you. And it bothers me a lot that classics has been sort of pushed to one side. And, and there are lots of state schools that teach classics, classive, and also some incredibly sturdy, brave ones trying to do Latin and Greek in a really hostile climate. And so I don't want to ignore them, but the vast majority of classics teaching happens in private schools, and that's 7% of students. And it is unacceptable to me that our collective history belongs to an elite that is that small. It's unacceptable to me that our collective history belongs to an elite at all. These are our stories. They're all our stories. And if our education system can't put them in people's lives, then I fucking will. I just won't have it. So... It's absolutely true, and our, you know, our family is, is an example of that. My girls, our girls went to a state school, and there is classics there now, but there wasn't at the point where our middle child uh, um, was studying there. And she found the Greek myths through, through your books, <laughs> through other, you know, there are other authors at the moment who are doing similar things. And it, and it was through that, that that she got the passion that now sees her studying classics at university. So yeah. it absolutely is reaching those I hope so. people, and, and, and a lot of them girls, actually. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's what I get from the audience. I mean, I realise they're very self-selecting, but that's what my audience is like when they turn up. Uh, brilliant. OK, we are running out of time a little bit. I did have something I wanted to ask you, though. Damn, it's gone, but it was really good. I bet it was. It was fantastic. Oh, that was it. I'm really, really interested to know how... I imagine that you've got a really high quality control in your own head that you won't let yourself slip under a certain level of quality when you're putting stuff out into the world and you know you know clearly your brain's fizzing at a thousand miles an hour but in terms of the actual thing that goes out there it really is the distillation of so much of that work that you just described yeah i hope so i mean yes i'm always trying that's the thing that is the thing about me i don't always succeed but i'm a fucking trier and i don't really understand when it became uncool you know when you're at school and someone's like, oh, they're such a try-hard? You go, I love trying hard. I try hard at everything all the time. I didn't realise we weren't supposed to. <laughs> so, yeah, so I am a massive trier. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the one thing that I feel really 
I, I genuinely don't get it all right, and, and I'm, but I'm really trying so much. But you wouldn't know that, that, that there's no perfectionism when you see me at the dojo or something and I'm just hopelessly failing to do a double sidekick. Yeah. But it's a fine line between trying really hard and then beating yourself up when you don't quite make it. Do you, are you, do you beat yourself up a lot as well? Or no, do you I've just... had two years of therapy with a German. Of course I don't. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, track number five is Frazy Ford because we hadn't got enough big years already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> Indian Ocean, if you hadn't It is called Indian Ocean, yeah. <laughs> so why did you go for this one? Um, partly because, I, you know, as we've discussed, the sea has been in my head for so long. And this one is one that I edited to, actually. I, I write bareared, and I run bareared very unfashionably. I don't particularly like having music in my head when I'm thinking. But when I'm editing, which is more of a craft job than an art job, I guess, in my mind... Um, then sometimes I do listen to music and that has, well you heard it it sounds like the flow of the tide and generally, I do occasionally admit to this in public and today is that day generally when I wanted to capture the sound of the sea when I was writing Stone Blind and indeed with uh, Thousand Ships I just used to run the dishwasher um, (laughs) because because my desk's right in front of it (laughs) it makes the same sound it's like, I don't know what you want from me I live over train tracks, I've got to do something so yeah, this is one of my uh, substitute that's a brilliant story. We should stop on that, but we've got another track, so we can't. But I've got a quote here from somebody talking about this. I don't know if it was actually Frazy Ford or somebody talking about Frazy Ford. But they, dis- they described her, or she described herself, her music, as trying to be an antidote to hopelessness, which I think is a wonderful yeah. thing. You don't seem to strike me as somebody uh, who has much time for hopelessness. I don't. No. Because where will it get me? You know, it's like, I, I get it. And you're allowed to roll around in it for you know, maybe 24 hours in my world, but that's it then. It's like, I, there's no... I'm a really hopeful traveller. For somebody who can be quite cynical, I'm really optimistic. I genuinely think the world is getting better. When people ask me, as they always do at history events, you know, if you could go back in time to anywhere, never, nowhere. I don't want to go back in time at all. I like having a vote and medicine. And even when the world is... Teeth. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, even when the world is difficult, and it has felt it a lot recently, I still want to be here. I still think that human ingenuity is the thing that we should have expectations of. I have great faith in us as people. So, thank you. And And I think as a stand-up, I was quite... You do have to be quite cynical, partly because it's a very (laughs) brutal business, but partly because you get... There's a lot of humour to be had in collective cynicism. But as a novelist, and as a sort of, I don't know what I've become now, communicator or something, it's like I, I had a really good 12 years of being cynical, and I'm done now. 
I'm just done with it. It's, it's, it's kind so, of boring as well, isn't it's it? So, it's such a boring position to hold. Oh, this old thing. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Do, you know, it's like, well, find a thing you like. I don't understand any cynical phenomena, really. That I don't understand, what is it called? Hate watching, where you watch a thing you know you won't like. It's like, the, this is the only life you have. Spend it on art you love. I don't understand it. Don't watch anything if that's how you feel. Go and talk to someone you care about. I, don't, I genuinely don't get it. I don't understand why anyone would pursue anger or unhappiness. They are going to be thrown at you over and over again. And sometimes you aren't going to be able to dodge them. So never, ever seek them out. Ever. Um, one thing that uh, Fraser Ford does talk a lot about is her parents and the influence that her parents had. One, they were free spirits. One was a conscientious objector who ran to That's so Canada. That's so <laughs> Canadian, yeah. And, and your mum's here. This is an awful question, because if I now say, how much have they inspired? Not at all. Hated <laughs> them. Bloody awful parents. But I'm imagining that's not the case. No, my mum is a free spirit, uh, although you wouldn't necessarily know it. She's very respectable and grown up and polite and nice and normal. But, yeah, I, my mum is fiercely independent, and she taught me as a... Well, from, from the smallest I could be, she taught me that the thing that would be most useful to me would be being independent too, and that I should pursue... My mum has never in her life said, I don't think you'll be able to do that. My mum says things like, I mean, give it a go. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? And that's entirely my attitude too. And that's why, you know, at every stage I do things for which I'm wildly unqualified. I was qualified to go to university and read classics and then what, become a classics teacher or, uh, you know, an academic of another sort. And I would have probably been all right here as well, I reckon. But instead, I was like, you know, I really fancy stand-up. And then, you know, it's like, oh, I could probably write a book. Oh, maybe a novel, maybe some other novels. And then, and now look, you know? So I think the worst thing, really, that you can give to your children probably is a sense that they should know their place. I don't know mine. And, uh, and it fills me with delight. And every now and then, somebody says, I don't read reviews because I think they're bad for your equanimity. But sometimes people tell you a review because they think they're helping. Um, even the nice ones, it's weird to hear for me. I don't see them until they go on the paperback cover yeah. and they send me the copy through. And I'm like, oh, great. But every now and then, somebody will say something like, um, you know, what, essentially, why would you think you can do this? You know, and it's like, well, should I know my place? As a daughter of teachers from Birmingham, what? Fuck you. Why should I? Why should I? Why shouldn't I get to be here? You know, I did the hours. So, yeah, I have absolutely no regrets. And the more those people... Sometimes the question is, how do you feel about academics who don't like your work? And I always give the same answer, which is, I laugh about them while I'm rolling around and use tenors and drinking Bollinger. Um, LAUGHTER and I don't drink very often, but that honestly is true. I, you know, it's like that. It must really suck to work really hard and be really bitter about me. Um, so enjoy that. I'm working really hard anyway, but yeah, I honestly couldn't give less of a toss. Where did it all go wrong, George Best? Yeah. <laughs> right, we're going to finish with We Know the Way from the film Moana. Because why of wouldn't you? Of course we are.
popular choice. Yeah, that was the right answer. Yeah, the balmy army over there. Yeah. And calm down. Well, stupid question, why Moana? Because everyone loves it and everyone thinks, yeah. oh, Natalie's great, she picked Moana. Yeah, because I'm not an idiot, but also because <laughs> it's, about find, it's about working out where you are in the world by doing rather than by thinking. And that's a really good piece of advice for the person like me who spends a lot of time thinking. I was going to say, because like, you no, go you, out. just your head, just even being near it, it's like the brain. I know, it's awful, like, isn't it? Oh, my yeah. God. So how do you get yeah. out of that? Sometimes after gigs, someone will come up and say, are you like that all the time? <laughs> I don't know, are you always this polite? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am, I'm like this all the time. I live here. I, I imagine how tiring it is. And so there's something... I mean, Moana is obviously a beautiful film uh, about a little girl who has to work out how to be a, a leader when she's not sure how to be herself yet. Um, and the thing that she learns is that sometimes you can only learn who you are and where you are by just doing it. And you can't think about it or wish for it or look out at the sea and, and expect it. You just have to go out and get lost and try. But so when, I, when have you done profound. that? Give us an example. That's, that's me all the time. I yeah. never, ever know what I'm doing. I'm always winging it and hoping for the best. I just try really hard so it doesn't show. But I never know. You know, over and over again, people say, oh, well, obviously, when you wrote this book that turned out to be really successful, you have I thought when I wrote my feminist retelling of Greek myth, it would become a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah, it really looked like it. But presumably I, at some point, no, you become, become emboldened by precedent, as Bill Nye put it, and you, yeah. you kind of think, okay, I've done, a, I've done this a lot of times, yeah, I and, I and, yeah. and, and I haven't failed, and they keep on coming back and buying more Yeah, copies. so I should try and learn a different thing that I don't know how to do yet. This time, kickboxing. Yeah, exactly. That's how I approach everything. I really like learning new things. I don't really understand why everyone else doesn't. I think there's a weird thing where we get to a certain point where formal education finishes and then we go, okay, well, now these are all the things I know, so I'll get on with things. And it's like, no. You're 18. You've got a lot left. Emotionally, I'm absolutely never going to be older than a teenager, I think. There's this theory, isn't there, amongst therapists that you stop at a certain age. There's a sort of version of you in your mind that's always that age. And I will always, at some level, be like that 16-year-old girl going... and you know and also I've got to learn how to do this because otherwise I won't be able to do all the other things I want to do how can I have adventures if I don't learn to drive how can I you know and sometimes and brilliantly you don't know the way but other people do know the way and they're not always formal teachers they're just people around you and sometimes they are the people who already know how to do the thing that you're doing they're already writers or they're already performers but sometimes they're just you know magical people in your life who are just natural teachers and by being there and asking questions and telling you stuff they make you smarter and know more and you should surround yourself with those people at all times because you can then totally pass off their knowledge as your own we don't normally do this but if you only had to pick one of the tracks which would it be i mean how can i not pick moana now it's created a group dance along uh ladies and gentlemen we've probably gone too far in time we always go too far yeah but (laughs) that's been extraordinary i feel so uplifted i feel so far from hopelessness you're extraordinary i'm sure everyone will agree natalie haynes thank you thank you wilderness tracks is produced by me jeff bird as part of the timber festival which takes place in the national forest each july If you enjoyed this episode, there are plenty more available wherever you get your podcasts.